Welcome to another Principle of Hospitality podcast. I'm your host, Sean DeVries, as always. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode. Now, Principle of Hospitality has been developed to tell stories of professionals within the dynamic world of hospitality. We are straight-talking, ethically-minded, and a reliable online source of information and inspiration for people in the hospitality industry. Now, Stella Coffee is here to provide high-quality, delicious, and responsibly sourced coffee to anyone who wants to discover it. Stella is led by Tim Barney, who's been doing coffee for some time in very different capacities. As a coffee roaster, as the co-founder of the World AeroPress Championship, or the co-founder of Melbourne's first co-roasting space bureau. With all that experience, I know this is going to be a great conversation, someone I really know well. Hey Tim, how are you? I'm really well, thank you Sean. It is fantastic to get you on the podcast. Obviously we see each other a lot nowadays because of because of Worksmith yeah. um, in Collingwood. But something I didn't know from the couple of months that we've known each other now is the World AeroPress stuff. So I want to talk about that really, really, really soon. Um, and I know we had a really good conversation about Stella the other week. How did you start out in the industry mm. and get into the world of coffee? Okay, where do we start? <laughs> I last listened to, I think, Leon talking about his beginnings. Yes. And um, loveliest guy in coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't shut up, though. <laughs> um, that was the longest podcast we'd done. Yeah. realise that. And we cut that short. Oh, that's good. It, 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 um, <laughs> it, did, it actually didn't feel that long. It like I mm. recently saw June and that was quite long, but it didn't feel long. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that's a testament to, to Leon's ability to talk. Yes. <laughs> but my start, I guess I, I fumbled into coffee, to be honest. I was studying marketing at Swinburne University, mm-hmm. uh, fumbling my way through that as well. And while studying, I was working at a little St Kilda institution called Il Fineo. I, I had a couple of um, jobs in coffee in quotation marks at a place called Southland, which is a shopping centre. Yes. A few people might know it. At a place called BB's Coffee and Bake. It was like muffins and coffee. Oh, I know BB's. Yeah. Yes. This is probably, I don't even know if they're around anymore. No, I don't think so. No, okay. No. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, that was, that was probably the very, that was when I was um, a dishy uh, right. and the barista didn't turn up and I know I was thrown on the machine and off mm-hmm. I went and I actually really enjoyed it. But yeah, I went on to go to, to Ilfaneo. Great bakery, sort of all-day venue, really well-respected at the time. It was a Van Handel institution in St Kilda, and I worked with some fantastic hospo people there and connected to the rest of the Prince of Wales. So it was sort of my um, – I, I was thrusted into the best of uh, hospitality yep. there. Prince Wine Store was there at the time as well. So I really learnt a lot. I didn't learn so much about coffee at the time apart from smashing out lattes which was a lot of fun when you're, you know, 20-ish. Mm-hmm. So that was the sort of the beginning of being a, a barista, I guess. And then after that, I did a few other bits and pieces, but eventually ended up in London, mostly to travel, which I did do a fair bit of with my then girlfriend. When I landed, I, I was working at an Indian restaurant that was using Illy. Wow. Yeah. It was like one of those fancier moody early 2000s uh <laughs> restaurants with the purple down lights and um <laughs> you know the great ambience old school cocktails and yeah yeah anyway they 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 used illy and one day the illy rep uh turned up his name is ben presland he's actually living in sydney he's from sydney running his own little roastery up there called sunny but back then was the 
the sort of illequality auditor. Wow. Which basically meant he kind of drove around London just checking on all the early accounts, making sure that the espresso was tasting tasting great, which I think was a, actually a really great thing all the way back then. In London yeah. at the time, there wasn't a great deal on offer. I think Monmouth was obviously flying the flag at that point. Mm. No flat white existed at that time <laughs> just yet, um, the, the shop and the drink. Um, <laughs> um, James Hoffman was sort of, he was, I think, working with Gadget and machinery at that point, so Square Mile wasn't around. So coffee was really in its infancy in London. It's now brilliant. Like a lot of cities around the world, there's there's great coffee in every city mm. uh, across the globe now. Um, but at the time, Ely was considered to be like, you know... The premium. The top shelf, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, it was in those uh, wacky kind of garbage pale tin things that <laughs> sat directly on the hopper. Mm-hmm. I remember the, the Ely sales kind of manager, regional manager or whatever used to hold the tins with white gloves while presenting to people, <laughs> suggesting the, uh, the quality. The premium nature the quality of the quality within. Yeah, that's right. Oh, okay. So I, I, um, I basically had this training with Ben at the restaurant and he was showing us all how to, to, to make espresso and it felt really like basic and, and I, I'm like, God, I, can, I, I know all this. Mm. And anyway, we, we got chatting because he was an Australian as well, as you do, and said, hey, we're looking for a, for another quality auditor to look after the east of London. And yeah. I was like, oh, I could do this, great. So anyway, long story short, um, had an interview with wearing flip-flops and shorts <laughs> because I, I didn't manage to get home between um, lunch and dinner services at, at the restaurant. So, yeah. But at the time, if you're an Australian, it means you know everything about coffee, yep. uh, which is totally untrue. Uh, <laughs> I knew nothing about coffee, but I could do a little bit of latte art and that equated to <laughs> knowing, knowing everything, everything about coffee. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, I jumped across to Illy and, and spent a couple of years with them. Uh, one of my biggest accounts at the time was the Tate Modern and Tate Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I looked after them. They had something like seven espresso machines in the Tate Modern and went through, I think they were the, the largest Illy account. Um, I think definitely in the UK, but outside of a certain region, they were, you know, pretty. I, I remember that the, st- the storeroom was just like filled with coffee ready to go. Right. So, so I um, was looking after them, and then I actually took a role with the Tate uh, as the members room manager, um, and was looking after sort of the coffee program there as well, mm-hmm. um, which was a great experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, looking over the river from level six every day was was quite good. Yeah. Uh, uh, so that that was that was excellent. That's I guess that was a bit of a stall in my coffee career, I suppose. But uh, you know, I, I, I learned a huge amount about a pretty big organisation like the Tate, um, mm. the interesting um, dynamic of it being publicly funded, and and what that meant for the hospitality side of things, and of course the the actual gallery itself. Mm. Uh, so that was really really interesting. Um, Sometime along that process, I met an, a Norwegian girl um, who, long story short, <laughs> drew me back to, well, not back to, but drew me to, to Oslo, Norway. Wow. And I think this is the sort of the mark of where I would say my coffee career actually began. Um, okay. She had a, a an auntie who was a wine buyer in Norway and knew of this guy named Tim Wendelbo who was opening a, a little ro- roastery and cafe 
in in Greenalerka, which was a, a little cool area, the Fitzroy of Oslo, I suppose, at the time. Um, and I, I knew the smallest little bits about Tim. I, I knew that he'd won the World Aeropress Championships and World Cupping Championships and that kind of thing. So when partner Ben's um, auntie said that he was opening, I thought, well, this is a great opportunity if we're going to move over there. So I, I flew over just to meet Tim, not for an interview, not for anything. Just said, "Hey, I'm, you know, th- I might might be moving to Oslo at some point. Do you mind if we we catch up for a coffee?" I don't know where I got the guts to do that, but yeah, right. for whatever reason, I sent him an email and he responded, and he did. And he was in the thick of getting the cafe and roastery up up and up and running mm-hmm. um, at the time. So I felt pretty pretty lucky to 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 grab that time with him, and it actually ended up being. A job interview, <laughs> which I wow. didn't sort of just know turned about. into it. It just yeah. sort of turned into it. Yeah, we we got along really well, which was great. And he was looking for someone to manage the bar, essentially. And yeah, and then within like maybe two weeks later, he offered me the job. And wow. probably six weeks later, I moved to moved to Oslo and wow. took that role and, and stayed there for six years with with Tim Wendelbow and the team there. So that's where I really learned my stripes, I suppose. Mm. What did you like about living in a Scandinavian country as opposed to Australia and then going to London? Like three very different places. Yeah, definitely. I mean, London was amazing. It was, you know, I think that the thing with London is, is if you land on your feet, you, you enjoy it thoroughly. And if you don't, it's it's a nightmare. Yep. And thankfully, I was lucky enough to have some great opportunities that led me to stay and not, you know, I was in no position to want to move to, to, to Oslo because I was really enjoying London. Moving to Oslo was like moving to a, a country town compared to <laughs> London, that's for sure. Um, the novelty of uh, the freezing cold winters wore off pretty quickly. Yes, <laughs> I bet. Um, but but they were sort of there's a lot of really important things that happened in Oslo that have driven a lot of what's happened to coffee around the world. And I think there's a lot to be said uh, about what they've done for all sorts of things, competition. They were sort of, they created the World Barista Championships at mm-hmm. a place called Solberg and Hansen, which is a larger roaster in Oslo. Um, the whole sort of Scandinavian or Nordic roast style probably started there as well. Tim is obviously a big flag flyer of that style of roasting. It's a little bit misunderstood, but that's probably uh, one of the things that makes Oslo a, a, an important city, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, or the country, I suppose, as well as... Uh, crucial to to where coffee is now in in a lot of respects yeah yeah often on the podcast i know with inspirational leaders like people like yourself tim like when we talk about the first real employer they had Mm. there's this pivotal moment in which they've had this great experience with this great employer that's taught them a whole heap of stuff that sometimes they don't even realize in the moment that they've learning those things they're just in it and they're in this flow state because they're so enjoying it Mm. Um, but then they look back on their career and and think about that time like when you think back to those six years with Tim Mm -hmm. in Oslo like what did you learn about coffee Mm. that you're now putting in practice now oh so much I mean I didn't know what I'd landed on at the time um at all um it was thinking back it was such an amazing experience and to this day I still follow Tim and keep in touch with him as well. Um, I think that the, the the biggest thing for me was I hadn't really drunk filter coffee at the time. Wow. When I started at, at Wendell Bow. Mm-hmm. I mean, as an Australian, we weren't really 
across it at all. Yeah. Um, it it was sort of more appropriate for airport lounges and conferences and cafeterias and that kind of thing. And mm. you know, our impression was the American diner style uh, filter coffee, which we all sort of shudder at. You know, at the time we did at least, and you know, our thing in in, in Melbourne and Sydney and the rest of Australia was espresso. So. When I landed in Oslo, everybody drank filter coffee. That that was their pr- primary wow. source of caffeine intake, I suppose. Um, everybody had a filter brewer at home. It was uh, second nature. I mean, that's why they're so uh, high in the per capita of coffee drinking uh, nations in the world. Mm-hmm. All of the Scandinavian countries are quite high. So that was the... When I say it was my kind of the beginning of my career in coffee, it, it really was because I was finally experiencing coffee in probably the best way it should be experienced mm. um, as a as a well-extracted uh, filter brew. I, and so that was a massive learning curve for me because my palate was used to probably quite a bit darker style of espresso back in Australia sure. and, and certainly London and with Illy. But here we are in Oslo where there was a whole lot more nuance and complexity to coffee through the the filter brewing process that I was suddenly thrown into, I suppose. Mm. Uh, So I had to learn really quickly about uh, filter coffee. I mean, at the time when Tim first opened the the cafe, we were were brewing French press or plunger before AeroPress or before the Clover, which some listeners will know what I'm talking about, before sort of batch brewing um, was, was a real thing. So... It was, it was so crucial. Like I, I feel like I had a head start basically yeah. t- compared to a lot of other Australians that I knew who were so heavily in in the, the espresso world. So when I'd come back to to Melbourne, it was every kind of year or so you could see the filter kind of thing slowly coming into mm-hmm. to a lot of the the cafes and and roasteries. So there was a lot of working out how do we do this at the time. And I remember coming back going. They've got a long way to go back in poor old Melbourne. Look yes. at me over in Oslo. I know it all now. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so that I think that was the biggest thing for me. And and these expressive um, coffees with no sort of secondary flavors from roast were just so, so incredible. And I really sort of fell for it at that point. How did you learn so quickly? Uh well, it was a full time <laughs> job, and I had to. And and I was, I mean, Tim was a fantastic educator as well and there was a bit of you know he was learning how to run a bar sort of or his own bar at least of his own um, expectations and roasting was something he he dabbled in but he certainly wasn't an expert at that time either Mm. my first couple of years at Wendelbo weren't roasting it was just running the bar and looking after the service stuff I mean that was something that I picked up obviously in Australia Mm -hmm. we're very good at cafe service I suppose or coffee bar service uh, and that was I think what Tim was attracted to in me at the time it certainly wasn't because I knew anything about coffee but he knew he needed someone who had been there done that exactly Mm. so a bit of experience managing people and 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 I think he was attracted to that sort of lackadaisical uh, Australian kind of uh, way of service which is friendly and open and I mean, it's it's. I don't think about it that that often, but when I do now think about it, little memories keep striking me about that time. And yeah, I'll be forever grateful for that opportunity. That's for sure. How did you get to the point where you were roasting coffee? Like, explain to me how you felt about 
having that moment where Tim would have said, hey, like I want you to start mm. roasting now. I think you're ready to go. Like is that sort of how it happened or was it a bit? Yeah, well, Tim, basically there were five staff at the very beginning um, and Ula was the sort of roast master or head roaster or whatever yep. stupid title <laughs> we used at the time. <laughs> um, and he looked after all of the production. And, and when we first opened, there were, you know, wholesale orders were pretty slim. We were just basically roasting for the bar. Yep. Um, but quickly he, we recognised that it would be good for somebody else to learn. And so that's where I stepped in and learnt how to roast. And thankfully at that point, you know, we developed a good quality control program. We'd worked out how the roaster worked. We, we sort of worked out what we liked. There was a few pivotal moments when we were tasting very specifically a, a, a moment that Tim talks about a lot um, when 90 plus came to visit with some Ethiopian samples um, and we had an Ethiopian coffee of, of our own on the same table that we, we tasted all of these coffees and the coffees from 90 plus were all sample roasted and traditionally with a sample roast it's a little bit lighter in roast degree and there was this in a couple of incredibly expressive, beautiful, floral, amazing, subtle nuances and delicate, delicate aromas uh, were shining from these coffees and ours tasted a little flat and lifeless and there was like roast taint on it and that was a bit of a, a real moment for, for us to sort of reassess how we roasted. So I was sort of along the journey with learning how to roast with, with Tim to a degree as well. Mm -hmm. His palate was far superior to mine, so I was sort of shadowing him, I suppose. And I, I don't know which way it sort of worked, whether I just liked what Tim liked or if I sort of had to like what he liked because at the end of the day it was his coffee, his name was on the bag, so that his direction was the direction we went in. But I think that they sort of married up really closely and... And so after that, after that particular tasting, we sort of, you know, re re began uh, uh, another sort of roasting journey, and and I think that that's when we really discovered we need to remove any kind of notes of roast character, the secondary flavors that you get right. from roasting, and and let the coffee coffee shine. You've got nowhere to hide in this instance, so it's the it's the raw product doing all of the talking. I mean, there's just so many points in that six years where I learned so much, and and. While we were at Wendelbo, that's when we conjured up the World Aeropress Championships as well as a bit of a bit of a, a an opposite trajectory to all of the other coffee competitions, which are all so much more stuffy and full of rules and regulations. We wanted right. to just do a, a sort of a fun competition. So there's so many things that happened in that six years that has sort of both built me as I'm built now, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, Tim was a, a really great leader. He knows what he likes. Um, and he doesn't take um, shortcuts in getting to where he wants to go. Was it hard to step out on your own and come up with your own style of roasting or your own sort of opinion in a way with someone who is so dynamic? Yeah, that's that's a good point. I, I do now feel like I know exactly what I like, but I think the challenge for everybody in, in coffee is to um, get to that point, to know what green coffee that will sort of represent their their style, I suppose, and to know how to roast it well and then to know how to brew it well. There's so many steps in coffee that it, it's quite unique in that respect. You know, I didn't go on immediately after, you know, after leaving Wendelbo, I moved back to Melbourne. There was a small opportunity of 
moving to Tokyo and helping uh, Fool and set up a roastery there. But I, I didn't want to move to another city. And I felt like Melbourne felt really exciting in, in coffee and it felt like the right time to come home. So mm. I didn't jump into doing something on my own. I took about it probably a year and a half to figure out what that was going to be. And it wasn't just roasting my own coffee. It is now and that feels really good. It's very much a side project, Stella. It's not my number one. We'll probably mm. talk about the rest of what I do uh, a little bit later. But mm. at the time of moving back to Melbourne, we'd recognised that there were, when I say we, I, I, I speak about my previous business partner, Tim Williams, who currently runs Bureau, mm-hmm. Bureau Coffee. We, he was living in London and moved back to Australia as well and we decided to do something together having run the World Aeropress Championships. Mm-hmm. I've skipped a few details here, but anyway. that, And so we discovered, I didn't, we didn't discover it, but we noticed that um, there were some really fantastic, well-established cafes or coffee bars that existed in, in Melbourne. But there were not that many roasteries at the time back in 2013-ish for memory. So a lot of people had gone through the best of Melbourne, you know, your seven seeds, your small batches, your market lanes. Mm-hmm. They all went on to do their own things. And mm-hmm. so there was this great presence of really talented baristas and cafe operators that had popped up and I guess you've probably talked about this a lot with mm. with other people there was a really sort of this golden era of yeah this the, movement this movement mm. yeah we all reference reference the, the third wave so that was that was all happening at the time and and we sort of thought you know there's these great operators who sort of discovering their own um, position in coffee as well and through their cafes or their coffee bars were presenting their own idea of what coffee was but they were all working with other roasters. They had maybe no desires to go on to open six other cafes and therefore warranting creating a roastery. But we thought, why can't there be an extension of what they're doing in a in very small format? You know, they, they brew in a certain way, they buy a certain coffee, but why can't we have the element of them roasting their own coffee and sourcing their own green uh, without having to set up what is quite an expensive exercise in, in, a, in a roastery. So the analogy that Tim often used was when the Beatles decided to record an album, they didn't go and buy a studio. They went to Abbey Road. That's we, great. We set up the Abbey Road of coffee <laughs> roasteries. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was the co-roasting space where all of these incredibly talented um, coffee professionals and cafe operators could then take charge of their own destiny around roasted coffee and create their own brand around it and and we would teach them and um, show them how to do it basically i'm just thinking back to those times these you know amazing people in coffee did they know how to roast before had they had they seen obviously they'd seen that in operation before but had they ever what was the level of like experience of actually roasting coffee themselves most most of the people that came on at bureau at the start hadn't roasted coffee before or had been in a roastery, so they'd been around it. Yep. There's a few examples outside of that. For instance, Wood & Co. Um, mm-hmm. were one of the first founding members of of uh, Bureau. He's obviously, Chris has obviously gone on to do, sorry, Aaron has obviously gone on to do his own roastery and he was pre-trained having been a roaster at Seven Seeds. But the majority had 
they they loved coffee. They they knew what they liked, but they just didn't know how to roast it, and that's where we sort of stepped in. And was it were you surprised by that impact of like how many like was there a minimum? There would have been a minimum quantity of like kilos, obviously. Like what did you what did you have as a minimum? Well, we in? we we wanted no barriers. Oh so wow, th- there was no minimum. You know, if you wanted to come in and roast a single batch of coffee, we were going to be there to help you do that. What did you decide to do that for? Well, I mean, it didn't stack up financially for yes. them necessarily, <laughs> but it, it certainly stacked up right. for us. We we formatted the the business to be able to take on those people as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of challenges in how we train people, what the expectations were. You know, we were dealing with multiple different personalities, multiple different people who wanted different things, yep. different outcomes, different styles of roasting. And I think that we were in a place to sort of empower them to, to make their own calls. We would teach them the basics, help them along the way, but eventually have them come in, do their thing, take their roasted coffee and then go back to the to the cafe. And that was brilliant. It was, it was a, lo- a lot of fun. I mean... Every day we're another early uh, member of Bureau Assembly and they've all gone on to do their own roasteries. So we were a bit of an incubator in, in, in a few respects as well. I was going to say, is that, that must humble you a bit. Um, it does, yes. I feel like, you know, we weren't the first in the world to do this, by the way. We were only the first in Melbourne. Um, sure. And there have since been other co-roasting spaces and arrangements that are similar. Um but, yeah, I mean, we knew of a roastery in, in New York who were doing it mm-hmm. before us. We went and visited them and I think it was just a – the timing was really good in Melbourne in, in that there were all these fantastic operators who, you know, it wasn't for everybody, that's for sure, you know, and we definitely didn't want to diminish or undercut, you know, not reflect on the amazing work that all the current roasters in, in Melbourne at the time were doing. We weren't replacing them, that's for sure. But we thought, why shouldn't the small guys be able to do something like this as well? Yeah, makes yeah. a lot of sense. Mm. Now, the title of this podcast is, and, and when we talked about recording this podcast a couple of weeks ago, in which we should have actually recorded that conversation, yeah. but we talked about how Stella really takes on the neighbourhood of coffee, not the world of coffee. Mm. And, it, and, it, and it loves to be, you know, smaller and, and, and that kind of stuff. Like... How have you made Stella different? Because obviously the world of coffee and especially Melbourne's world of coffee is so transformative, is so competitive. Um, everyone has an opinion. How have you made Stella different? Yeah, I, I'm. that's an ongoing struggle, I think. And it's probably an ongoing struggle for most operators, most coffee roasters in, in Melbourne. There is an element of everybody saying the same thing in coffee and I'm certainly acutely aware of that. Whether I am particularly different is open to interpretation, I suppose. But I think that, I mean, the, the, the beauty of Stella at the moment for me is it's not my number one bread and butter. It's, mm. it's very much a little side project part of the, the wider worksmith umbrella, I guess. So it, and with that comes free reign for me as well. So I'm not beholden to anything really or yep. anyone got s- sort of full creative control and you know all of the green purchasing happens through me so I, I i am in a fantastically unique position of being able to 
really, really organically grow Stella and for me just to do kind of exactly what I want to do. What I don't have necessarily is is the time and the headspace to be able to put everything into Stella because there's other projects that I adore and love that I'm doing at the moment. But it's really nice to still have a foot in the door, I suppose, in coffee and to, yeah, keep my brain ticking over in terms of what will set me apart. I mean, there's uh, other roasters are, uh, are constantly evolving and doing, whether it be more responsible things, more sustainable things, I just saw Market Lane the other day and now Carbon Neutral, which was really great news. I think Dukes have gone all organic as well, which, wow. is a, which is a big step. I think that's correct. It's really great to see these more slightly more established coffee companies go out a little further than the, the norm, I suppose. So I'm, as a sort of a one-man team, I'm hoping that I'll have those opportunities to do something sort of outside the the box i mean my packaging is is relatively unique in that it's in a paper bag rather than in a you know a hermetically sealed plastic mm. you know um, biodegradable bag with mm-hmm. a valve and a ziploc and etc cetera, etc cetera. i don't really feel like we deserve that kind of packaging I, I really like the idea that my packaging can go straight into the paper recycling so there's little things that i can do that they're certainly not going to change the world that's for sure and i've loved working with cafe imports and Melbourne coffee merchants in in the purchase of green coffee, it wouldn't make sense for me to be working directly with producers uh, just yet, but it's something that I'd love to pick pick up on again, uh, having done a little bit of it before. So as a a small little one-man thing, it's sort of at that stage where organically it's growing, the word is sort of getting out there. I'm, I'm doing a lot of guest stuff at other cafes and uh, that's been that's been awesome. What do you enjoy about coffee the most? Because it could be with it being the the nature of something being a side gig, mm. and like this is a side gig for like Sash and I, right, mm. on the podcast, is that sometimes you lose perspective on it, or you may lose joy from it because you're not doing it as the full time thing. Yeah. How do you make sure that you continue to get up and get excited about Stella? I think I definitely needed a break from coffee, having done it for X amount of years. So I needed to sort of regain that passion for it. So when I'm asked what what do I love about coffee, I still struggle to answer that well, I think. I certainly love coffee and coffee at the moment I think is going through a bit of a tricky phase. We're pretty saturated with with options. I mean, you could say saturated or you could say spoilt. Yeah, Melbourne has a we're in a funny place. I was actually speaking to a friend, um, Charles Levinsky, who is in New York but used to be in LA running Go Get Em Tiger. And it's he feels the same way about where coffee's at at the moment too. It's in a bit of a state of flux in, in some respects. There's always going to be the same ch- challenges that we've always faced, the same conversations we'll always have in coffee ever since I sort of got serious about it and that is – why isn't it more expensive? Why is it so unbelievably affordable for the end the end punter? Why is it that the punters think a coffee should never be above $4? There's all of these sort of ongoing struggles that we'll have because coffee is what it is. It will never be uh, considered like a fine wine or a rare single origin cheese or whatever. I don't know. Mm. 
unfortunately, we, we, we're sort of stuck in this tiny little window of what we can kind of charge for a, a cup of coffee or, or even a bag of coffee. Whereas in wine, we, they have that fantastic array and giant window of you can get a, a bottle of wine for 10 bucks or you could get one for $45,000. Yes. And, and everyone seems to be okay with that because they recognise the work or the difference in quality across wine. But coffee sort of sits in that weird spot of it being this drug that people use to wake up and it's, you know, the God-given right of a Melbourne person to be able to get that super quick and of super high quality for next to nothing. So, you know, even conversations between roasters and cafe operators who, you know, are desperate to put their prices up, they're just so scared to do that because the guy down the road who's only 500 metres away, you know, may not jump on that train and do the same and and that's the unfortunate nature of of coffee as it stands today. Do you think the industry missed a moment when third wave coffee came through to actually make that change and up in price? Because great coffee brands have done everything that wine is doing in regards to notes of coffee and what you're going to taste and Mm. the quality and obviously the barista training has excelled and the Mm. quality of coffee machines have improved and the standard of coffee is remarkably better than it was 10 or 15 years ago. Yep. I love how you asked before, what do you like about coffee? And I just started moaning about it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think we, we... Sort of fucked it up a little bit, I think. We did we did, and we didn't. Like, I don't want to take away from all the brilliant things a, a big bunch of people in Melbourne and Australia have done for coffee because there are some incredibly talented people who are way more talented than me who've made a real impact in, in coffee. But I think that we maybe a little bit naively went down the route of trying to elevate coffee as if it were the same as you know, a really beautifully well-made cocktail or mm. a, a, a glass of wine from a fine dining restaurant. We created this barista meme of the ridiculous bearded guy with a leather apron and, yep. um, this, you know, the, the moody barista kind of who wasn't very good at service anymore and scoffed at, you know, the stuff that you were ordering. So that kind of jarring thing happened a little bit, which meant that people kind of, were sort of a bit fatigued by what we were trying to achieve in coffee. Yep. And what we were trying to achieve really was people to enjoy it as much as us and recognise the work that goes into it and recognise that a cup of coffee isn't just a cup of coffee. And I think we've we've managed to sort of do that over the last sort of 10 years, but quite slowly. And, I, you know, we're not going to be able to change people's perception on, on coffee overnight. And this conversation is still going to happen with many people who just think that coffee is coffee. But I feel like people are now realising that, you know, specialty coffee is here to stay. That's a problematic <laughs> term, specialty coffee. But I think people are aware that it's, it's a, it is a unique thing and it does deserve to have the same kind of respect as any other food or beverage product. Sure. Yeah. Do you think the challenge is as well because it's an everyday usually an everyday product as well now? 100%, yeah. There's, yeah. you know, we, we did try and, I mean, Melbourne uh, has always been brilliant at the cafe experience. Yep. Um, and, you know, Leon touched on that in moving 
proud Mary over to, to Portland, recognizing you know there was a very particular style of service that was really great and world world renowned as well. Everybody kind of knew of that. A tourist was was here to experience the cafe scene if you were coming abroad. So I think that we were always really good at the cafe thing, but not really that great at the coffee thing. But I feel like they're sort of now leveling out a little bit and we're getting way better at making coffee accessible and not difficult to understand and still sort of tick off all the boxes of what people actually really enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, there's got to be... There's got to be a breaking point, right? Because where, if you think about the supply chain, you think about the producer, the the buyer, and then the cafe as part of that process, and also roasting in that process as well. So there's sort of three or four people who are making a clip from the coffee. Mm-hmm. Like obviously the producer, through better sourcing and better standards, and and people earning better wages in the places that coffee is grown, that is going to that's going remarkably up, mm-hmm. I would imagine. Mm-hmm. And then everything else in the middle, like coffee is going to become almost a loss leader for cafes or very close to it mm. and that they'll need to think about their food offering and making sure that they're selling food in order yeah. to make customer money off a customer. How wild would that be though? Imagine oh. that in a restaurant where your you, you booze, yeah. your wine is the loss leader. That yes. doesn't stack up at all. Yeah. Um, and that would be an awful scenario for coffee to be in where because of the pressure they have to stick to $4 a cup. That would be, you know, that would be awful. I think it's got to be that we rip the Band-Aid off and, and keep pushing for higher prices for paid for a cup of coffee or a bag of coffee. Because at the moment, it's a bargain. It is so affordable for something that takes so much work to achieve. So it would be heartbreaking to see that be the case. But who knows? I mean, they've uh, coffee roasters and obviously cafe operators, we all know, have been through a pretty hellish couple of years. Yeah. Um, and so I don't blame anyone for doing what they can to, to keep the doors open. And we need to probably go through a bit of a recovery stage before we can start really looking at how we operate, and at least from a, a coffee perspective. So it's an ongoing issue. Sure. Uh, and but it, that's that said, it has been for forever. I just I just wonder what we do to make sure that staff don't get abused in cafes when that does happen, right? Because is it is it just an education piece? Because I feel like the last ten years, like we've done a, the industry, cafe industry's done a coffee industry has done a great job in educating about the producer story and and everything around that to say, look at these people that we're we're giving a living wage to and making sure we're looking after and oh. every part of the supply chain we're doing. Um, Market Lane is now B Corp approved. Like they're doing yep. everything they can and educating. Yeah. And yeah, we've we've really gone above and beyond to educate people. When you pick up a bottle of Burgundy, there's no tasting notes on it. There's no information on where the wine was made apart from its origin. It's, you know, unless you know about wine, you're not going to sort of understand what's going on. We can't do that in coffee. Mm. I mean, I do that. Like because I shudder at the idea of having to explain how a coffee tastes. Yes. I gave it a shot there for a little bit, but I, I um yeah, I really struggle with tasting notes on, on, on coffee, on anything really. Okay. Um I love the idea of a well trained barista or, you know, working a little bit more like a SOM in being able to describe a coffee when people want to choose something. We don't have the luxury of having that, you know, 
five minute conversation when someone's on their way to work, of course. Yeah. <laughs> what we've had to do, and, and maybe we we had to do this. We had to kind of go over the top to highlight what is involved in a in a particular coffee or have people understand where it is from. You know, the processing method of of coffee is still, you know, something that people don't really understand. I mean, you can name 10 wine varieties, right? Yep. Can you name 10 coffee varieties? No. No. Um, (laughs) But I know there are. I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad (laughs) thing. but (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I mean, I think the general base level of people's understanding of um, wine and beer, for instance, I need to stop talking about wine, um, but is a lot higher than their basic understanding of uh, of coffee. So we've had to do this to bring that level up and therefore people's appreciation will s- sort of rise along alongside it. Where do you think we're at in regards with, you know, barista championships and stuff like that? Because going back to what we said at the start of the podcast in regards with AeroPress and the championships that you're part of there, like do you think now that we can be sort of more in person or starting to that is going to come back with a vengeance and the barista is going to be heralded as, as, they, yeah. as they were? It's a funny thing. I mean, I had a very kind of cynical. I was I was a bit of a moany bitch about um, yeah <laughs> coffee competitions. I felt them to be too stuffy. They're ridiculous. They're they're nothing like the real world, and which is why the World Aeropress Championship sort of formed because mm-hmm. there's a beautiful simplicity to how that competition runs, and it's all about the brew method, and that's it. You know, everybody uses the same coffee. The judges don't know who is is brewing the coffee. So it's very sort of open for anyone to take part in and purely presentative of of the best coffee that's brewed on the day. I was watching just this past weekend the the World Aeropress Championships were live streamed from from Bureau. Um, Unfortunately, it was actually the 2021 World Championships. Um, And... They basically did a format where they had three surrogate baristas, you could call them, okay, who were brewing on behalf of all of the national champions around the world. Wow! So it was um, quite the exercise for those three <laughs> those three baristas to, to brew. Must have been almost must have been a, at least forty odd cups each. Following, following different recipes using the same coffee. Um, but that looked really, really brilliant. You know, that competition took a, a bit of a dive, not a dive, but had to really rearrange how they ran things um, in the last couple of years with, with COVID. But I think that there's people, young coffee professionals, love competition. And for many people, it's a great way to quickly learn. It's a great way to bring your skills up yep. as well. So I, I, I did once have a very cynical position on coffee competitions, but I think there's definitely a place for them and it would be very sad to, to not see them be part of part of the, the industry. Yeah, I mean, and I think part of it is that I don't ever feel like I'd have the guts to, <laughs> to get up there, at least for the World Barista Championships and talk to, to four judges while, while making perfectly extracted espresso. Yeah, the pressure that must be is must be pretty intense. I mean, I've helped coach a few people and I feel m- often I'm more nervous and anxious than, than they are. Yeah. Uh, but some people are built to do that and really excel at it. And um, a lot of them go on to do really fantastic things. I want to talk about how you taste 
coffee. Because I remember a couple of years ago when I was working for a particular brand and we were getting supply of coffee from a very proficient coffee supplier. Okay. And his comment to me was, I said, what did you think of the filter? Here we go. And his comment to me was, it just doesn't taste like coffee. And it was really interesting comment and it's never mm. left me. It's two and a half years from that. So hang on, who said it doesn't taste like coffee? So this was the head chef. The head chef, okay. Right? But yeah. knowledge to the extent, like mm. so much knowledge. Oh, I've had right? that happen a thousand times over. It's it's so hard to know what that means. Mm. So then when you're, because I was seeing you um, tasting yesterday, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're going through that process and you're tasting different blends and and however you're doing it, what are you tasting for? Like how do you taste for a palate which is so broad? Yeah, well, that was a very particular type of tasting uh, or cupping and that was purely in quality control of a few roasts that I'd done the previous week. Right, okay. what I was assessing there was maybe very different to how I would assess buying a coffee. Okay. Or assessing coffee to uh, figure out the taste notes or the aromas. So yesterday was more about assessing the roast quality mm-hmm. and making sure that the the coffee was sort of being represented in the best possible way. A lot of the coffees on the table yesterday were roasted very similar to each other. So I'm really kind of searching for any slight differences to suggest that that coffee is going to perform better than another one. Yeah, right. Um, so I think <coughs> there's everything from, you know, the development of essentially sugars in the coffee mm-hmm. um, to, uh, you know, the aftertaste, the level of acidity, mouthfeel, the structure of the coffee. They all sort of come into play to sort of assess whether or not I've roasted this well or not. Super interesting. It's really interesting and, I mean, the brilliant part of my job for so long in coffee has been roasting and, 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 and tasting. I mean, this is one fantastic, unique thing about coffee that, that maybe, you know, the wine industry don't necessarily have. We roast the same batch of coffee multiple times in a week and get mm-hmm. to taste it every week and improve it as we go as much as we need to, whereas you've kind of had one shot Great point. One time a year to to uh, nail a particular cuvee or whatever it might be. So that's that's one of the the best things about coffee is that you can really evolve uh, a particular coffee. I mean, the coffee itself will change due to age and how well it's been processed and stored and all the rest of it. But that evolution of of how you roast a coffee is is part of the fun for sure. Is there is there a reason why we don't grow very much coffee here in Australia? Is it is it literally climactic? Pretty much, right? As, yeah, it's something that I've not really spent a huge amount of time on. Funnily enough, Tim Wendelbow actually bought an Australian coffee all the way back in I don't know, it must have been two thousand and seven or something like that. Farm was called Mountaintop Coffee, and I think they were in New South Wales, like Blue Mountains, that kind of thing, right? That oh, sort of okay. area, I think. Yeah, yeah sort yeah. of a little further north. So all about climate and mm. topography and elevation and we don't have that sort of when we're not sitting in between the, the two equators yeah, yeah, yeah. where the which is the best sort of the band of where coffee is best right. grown also if you're growing it in not the best sort of climate then you need to select varieties that will 
be able to produce mm. and they're not necessarily best tasting coffees. Right. So there's that that compounds things. But one of the big things as well is that labour in Australia, like we know with picking fruit or vegetables at the moment is a challenge because we don't have the, the labour force to do it. It's the same in Australia. It's expensive and, you know, it should be – we should be able to do it in Australia and, and charge what it's worth. Mm. But unfortunately where most coffee is grown is in close to third world countries who may not have the same infrastructure and situations of, of how, how labour is constructed. We've talked a bit about the worksmith alliance here and stuff. Mm. You want to explain what else you're doing because Stella isn't your, your full-time yeah. gig and what you're really enjoying at the moment? Looks like I'm lazy. <laughs> It's like, well, why don't you do more? Why don't you do more, Tim? Jeez. Um, (laughs) So I'm the creative director at Worksmith and it's, wow, it's been quite, I've been here for I think close to three years now, for maybe two and a half years. Um, And basically Worksmith has evolved in my time even. Originally it's sort of a co-working space for hospitality, individuals, businesses, ventures, startups, uh, an incubator for people, uh, a resource for help and assistance and guidance. But it's evolved into hosting the Melbourne Cocktail Festival, which mm-hmm. is coming up in about three weeks. And there is now Homegrown, which is a batched, bottled and kegged cocktail brand and company. There's the industry mem- membership, of course, Sean, which you've been mm-hmm. um, prolific and incredibly helpful with, uh, which is designed to support uh, venues around Australia. So there's a lot of little projects that are uh, now connected to Worksmith that I have s- certain amounts of um, responsibility over or input in. Yeah, right now it's all guns are blazing for the Melbourne Cocktail Festival. My skills in event preparation around the World Aeropress Championships is why I'm sort of part of that Melbourne Cocktail Festival because I certainly don't know that much about cocktails. <laughs> Embarrassing. <laughs> It's been embarrassing sometimes to be sort of pulled up on certain things I've said or people that I don't know in the industry. But yep. um, thankfully, Emma Ramos, who's now part of the team, um, has a brilliant connection to that part of part of the industry. So she can school me where I need to be schooled, which is most of it. Very um, helpful. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's that's coming up in April and we've done that for the past three years. Somehow managed to sandwich it between bushfires or lockdowns or pandemics this year we're back to the sort of size that we originally uh, wanted to be with the symposium and a big tasting day called splash Uh, we've joined forces with the melbourne food and wine festival as well who Mm -hmm. uh, obviously have a fantastic wide reaching audience that we're tapping into as well to sort of help us get the message of uh, the melbourne cocktail festival out there too so yeah it's a brilliant week of events have a thing called the bar safari which is an array of around 40 different bars in melbourne who produce a bespoke cocktail for for the week for punters to to try so it's very much an exploratory experience that for for people to hopefully discover bars that they'd never heard of before or yeah sort of an immersive experience i guess in many respects there's also the events that are attached to the festival too where bars run their own events whether they be workshops or parties or bar takeovers mm-hmm. or um aperitivo afternoons 
afternoon or early evening? I don't know when you're supposed to have an aperitivo. Whenever you're supposed to. Whenever do you want to. Yeah. But yes, early evening. Yes. There, there we go again. <laughs> non knowledge. Um, so yeah, it's 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 been a lot of fun to do that, um, and that's what I'm sort of uh, in the throes of at the moment, and really enjoying it. How did it come to be that you actually came to work for Worksmith? I never asked you that before. Michael and I uh, used to well, Michael when he was still working at Bar Liberty yep. behind the bar, we basically flirting with each other at the <laughs> bar. Um, Sounds pretty normal. I'd come in uh, either by myself or with someone and sit at the bar. It was a great spot to sit in the early days. Yeah, it wasn't as unbelievably successful and busy as it is now. I mean, it was then as well, but it was a great. You know, it's a small bar, so you felt like you were being treated like royalty. Yeah. Um, and so we just got talking, basically. I think at the time, Michael may have been doing some time at um, Proud Mary. Right. Um, at the time, or Auntie Peg's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think he was doing a little, yeah, a little educational whatever with them. Yep. Learning the ropes of, of coffee. I don't think Michael had the idea to go into coffee, but I think he just wanted to expand his... Um, his knowledge and you know Leon was good enough to to show him the ropes there, so we had that connection as well to talk about coffee. I think yep. he wanted to pick my brains and I was picking his. And it yeah. worked out well. And yeah, and then short of kissing behind the shelter sheds, <laughs> we <laughs> we kept in touch because he was starting Worksmith. I at the time was starting Bureau with Tim, mm. um, so we had a lot to share about the um, thrills of starting your own business and we just stayed in touch and when it was time for me to to move on from Bureau, Michael offered me some sort of role at Worksmith. It was pretty loose at the start and it's now kind of has a bit more uh, sharpness to, <laughs> to it. Yeah, Is Worksmith what you thought it would be? No. How, how's it? <laughs> Not at all. How's it different? Well... I absolutely have loved it, that's for sure. And that is primarily because of the people who yeah. I work with and the, the community that I've met through through Worksmith. I think that it's because Worksmith isn't this clear-cut... Like when people ask me what I do, it's very difficult to answer yeah. a lot of the time. My dad still sort of asks me what I what I do. So what, what is Worksmith again? Mine too. And I give him some other slightly different... Uh, explanation of of it <laughs> so i think it's been great that worksmith has evolved very quickly michael and roscoe are incredibly positive and true entrepreneurs i think yeah. in many respects and so being in that sort of environment has been really exciting as well we've obviously had our challenges like everybody else has um, but out of those challenges a lot of really fantastic things have been born um, like the festival, like Homegrown, like the industry membership. So it's been a constant evolution, but I feel like we're every day gaining more clarity on what we're to do. Mm-hmm. And, and, and there's nothing worse than being in a, in a, in a position in wherever you are not quite knowing where you're supposed to sit. Yep. Not that that's been the case for me, mm. but I know that that has been creeping up occasionally i've had that feeling in other other places as well and you feel like you've not got confidence in what you do you're a little unsure about you know what you're working towards all of those kinds of things 
make it really difficult. But with Michael and Roscoe and the rest of the team, we have a lot of clarity now in what we're doing and it's because of that we, we're really making headway, I think, which is great to be a part of. How have you found your place to sit at the table there? Because a lot of people who listen to the podcast, right, who work in the industry, a lot of different things are being thrown at them at the moment with opportunities and like, should I work for this venue or should I do some stuff on the side or maybe I'll do both. Yeah. But you've always come across to me as like a person who knows what place to sort of sit at the table. Yeah. At different points. At the kids' table? <laughs> I feel like no, no, the big <laughs> No, the big person table. I um, often bring meetings into disrepute. <laughs> No reason at all. Dicking about, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, I've always had like my, my time at um, at Worksmith has been across multiple businesses and very different ones, like a small coffee roastery, a big festival in a city, uh, uh, you know, a batch cocktail co working space, all sorts of different things. And when I was with Bureau, it was we did Bureau and we did the World Aero Press Championships. So although they were both in coffee, they were also very different businesses as well. So I've, for a really long time since since forever, and I think that's sort of born out of a little bit of consulting that I did before Bureau, I've always sort of had a lot on my plate, a lot yeah. of different things on my plate. And the, the challenge for me often is to say no to things and to really focus, you know, like a little squirmy <laughs> I'm sticking smile about my there. own life, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I mean, it's just, I, I guess it's, I want to be a part of everything. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, you, it's hard bit. to say no because you see something might be a lot of fun to do. Yeah, it's exciting. Exactly. Mm. So I think that some people, like Tim Williams and Tim Wendelbow, the other two teams that I've worked with, were always really, really good at saying no to things and recognising where they should be focusing their time and energy. And... Sometimes that can be a disappointment because I'm the kind of person who wants to take things on. Mm -hmm. But as time goes on, you recognise that sometimes you may not, you know, nail that extra thing that you're doing and you end up feeling much worse than if you'd said no to, yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. My last question to you is like, what are you, what are you looking forward to this year? You're playing in so many different... Ballparks at the moment, like we talked about MCF, which is... Footy starting. Footy, yes. Yep. Yes. Uh, sorry, but you're talking about the hospitality industry at the moment? Oh, we're talking or about every. Talk yeah. about generally. Like, obviously, MCF is is on at the moment where this podcast is um, has been released uh, up until the 9th of April, I think, mm -hmm. off the top of my head. But what are you excited about this year? Like, we've got so much runway to go. Yeah, I think at the moment it's head down, bum up with the festival. So, mm. I mean, one of the important things that you need to get good at is to see into the future a little bit more than to be sort of too stuck in the weeds with things. And so post the festival, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the industry membership and homegrown really make some inroads. So, sorry to speak a little bit businessy there. <laughs> um, no, but they're important. They're yes. important. They're important for the industry. Oh like, yeah. You know, they're a big change from what's happening right now. Yeah, I mean, um, the industry membership feels like a really good thing to do for the industry. Yeah. Um, and my part in that will be more around um, curating events that the industry members will be able to come to. It's something that I did a little bit at Bureau as well. Um, and they were always a great feeling to get the community together to talk about whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. So it'll be great to do 
to do more of those for the industry membership. And also, you know, homegrown, it's, it's really, you know, at the heart of it, it's about celebrating all Australian spirit producers. And second to that or equal to that is it's a really great solution for these venues who finding that they're selling more and more cocktails, mm-hmm. but they're short-staffed or they're short on expertise. And so that's where Homegrown will hover into and uh, be a great solution for these bigger venues. It's never going to be for, you know, the world's top 50 bars, mm. but the world's top 50 bartenders are putting their hands in to create Homegrown. So it feels like it's coming from the top and, and being able to sort of empower these venues who are doing more and more drinks and and need to do it faster. Yeah, homegrown sort of reminds me in a way of like how technology has changed the industry in the last sort of two, three years. And the fact that there's immediate pushback because it's new mm-hmm. and it's like, I don't understand it, so tell me more. Mm-hmm. I want to understand it. A yep. bit like technology was like, you know, order a table or delivery or anything like that. Yep. It's like, oh, I'm not sure how much I want to release of the hospitality experience for my yeah. guests in an ever-evolving world of hospitality where we have to really concentrate on the guest experience mm, and, and collaborate with great producers or great suppliers and great people. Mm, um, well, I think it just makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we did the the symposium, the Melbourne Cocktail mm. Festival Symposium, and one of the panel discussions on that was um, around batching co- cocktails and bottling cocktails. Mm. And it, that was really insightful to understand from three different people who have had a finger on the pulse around that and also the concerns for, for some venues who have to deal with the the punters who see when a cocktail comes out of a tap, why am I still paying $23 yep. for it? Yep. They don't see the magic that happens behind the curtain. They miss the sort of theatrics maybe or the, the feeling that somebody is making something especially for me. Yeah. I mean, Homegrown isn't there to remove the bartender that's for sure nor are bottled cocktails or batch cocktails but they're there for a certain portion of that offering for a particular bar or or, or venue Um, and that's where it's going to sit really well and i think that there's always going to be these moments in the evolution of a certain product where there's pushback from people within the industry as well as people on on the other side of the bar so i mean we experienced a similar thing with batched coffee when we made all of this hoo-ha about, you know, single brewing a single cup for a single customer, focusing on pouring the, the water and, you know, anti-clockwise and <laughs> stirring it 13 and a half times. Absolutely. Um, so they, they have this, well, this is what it should be yep. all the time. And if, yep. if it's anything else, it's less than that. Quality isn't as good. But, of course, the skill involved in batching of a high quality is equal to doing it it's just happening behind the scenes i feel it comes back to what we talked about at the start about education in coffee and mm. maybe that's the same for batch cocktails as well i think it probably is and both the consumer and the industry that's <laughs> right well yeah and it's nice to be in the position to hopefully help that along timbo thanks for the uh conversation today it's been a delight i'm timbo now you can be timbo do yeah, you want to be timbo no, my closest friends call me timbo okay so is it still tim i'll allow it <laughs> What's the best way that people can find out, um, especially about Stella Coffee? Especially about Stella, yes. Well, Stella.coffee is the website. Obviously, there's a little retail store there and 
I do have some space for some more wholesale customers as well. So you can get in touch with me via the website or Instagram, which is the annoying at Stella Coffee underscore. Oh, the underscore. Yeah. Okay. It's embarrassing. <laughs> but I. There's too many Stellas. There's too the many. There's there's a Korean Stella. Oh, okay. There's other Stella coffees that are just enthusiasts, and I've reached out to all of them and have been either blocked or <laughs> <laughs> told to get stuffed. Underscore it is. It makes you yeah, unique. So at Stella. Un- at Stella Coffee. Dot underscore. No, no dot. Okay. <laughs> you'll you'll find it on the website. <laughs> And linked up in the show notes of this podcast, uh, Tim Barney, thanks so much. My pleasure. <laughs> thanks again for tuning to another episode of Principle of Hospitality. I hope you really enjoyed that one. I know I learned a lot. Coffee has been a major conversation piece for the podcast the last couple of years, so it's always fantastic to learn a bit more. Please comment, like, and share the podcast with your friends in the industry. We're making this content with the industry in mind, so we'd really appreciate, appreciate I should say, you sharing along with those you know in the industry. And if you don't know us at Poe, Sash, my co-founder from Principal Design, has one of the best design agencies in Australia. So if you're looking for anything around strategy, branding, digital design, wayfinding, and graphic design, then you can find them at principaldesign.com.au and myself at Open Pantry Consulting for anything to do with systems and processes to make your business run even more smoothly. And as well, this is the last episode of season 10. Look forward to season 11. We've got some big, big announcements and you won't have to listen to just my voice on the podcast, which I think is going to be really, really exciting. So until next time, stay safe, everyone.